Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news and insight and analysis from football's biggest teams and biggest moments. Well, hello again, I'm Johnny McFarlane, replacing the irreplaceable Duncan Castles here at the Transfer Window podcast for one more episode. Now, before we start, Ian, it would be absolutely remiss of me not to mention yesterday's Rangers-Celtic match, or should I say Celtic-Rangers, but perhaps I've got them the right way around, given that Rangers did indeed pump your beloved Celtic at Parkhead. (laughs) How do you feel? I'd say I'm remissed. (laughs) That's what I would say. And and I'd be quite happily not mention it, but listen, Rangers played well. They deserved the victory, Johnny. Um, I don't think even Celtic fans or Celtic players would have any difficulty with that. So, um, yeah, it makes for a more exciting uh, second half of the season in Scotland. A magnanimous McGarry. Who would have thought it? Indeed. I'm nothing if not magnanimous. I'm impressed, Ian. I was expecting a two or three minute rant that would have started us off with a plum. But nevertheless, we shall move on to matters probably of significantly greater interest to our listeners, which is news about Erling Haaland and his move to Borussia Dortmund, which has just been announced. Now, we've been discussing this on the transfer window um, in terms of this player's potential move to a number of clubs. Manchester United were heavily linked with the player, and we know that that was definitely discussed between Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and the player's father, that that potential move, it hasn't happened. And now this uber-talented young striker has ended up uh, moving to Germany. Ian, this is um, a bit of a kick in the teeth for Manchester United. But perhaps, perhaps it will open another door further down the line. Possibly. Um, it's a big blow, for, as you say, Johnny, for Manchester United. They put a lot of work into this transfer. They were very, very keen on the player. Uh, he fitted Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's uh, modus operandi, a uh, young um, player who can be coached already, obviously, significant goal-scoring uh, record with uh, RB Salzburg. And uh, they did indeed feel they had a deal agreed, both with the player and with Salzburg, however, the sticking point in this, as we did say in the podcast, was the involvement of agent Mino Raiola, who has caused Manchester United numerous problems with his clients regarding um, Henrik Mkhitaryan, uh, his last name Ibrahimovic, but most significantly Paul Pogba. Now, it was not a, a game-breaker <laughs> from my understanding that um, uh, in terms of paying the commission to Raiola, uh, it was around 8 0.5 million pounds, uh, which I think is about 11 million euros. It was a fact that um, Raiola, <clears throat> as he did with the transfer of Paul Pogba, insisted the commission was paid in one instalment up front, which is very unusual, but it's what happened, uh, in, as I said, in the move from Juventus, when they received almost 20 million pounds in that transaction. And United took a stand on this and said, no, we'll pay over the course of the contract of the player over five years. Um, although we could be willing to pay slightly more up front. Um, And then, uh, effectively, uh, Borussia Dortmund um, paid the commission up front to Raiola. Uh, Therefore, he got his wish. Um, The player's release clause was met. 
and indeed the player, I think he had some reservations about about going to Manchester United in terms of would they make Champions League, etc. He's had a taste of it this year. I said with RB Salzburg, he scored goals in the Champions League and opted to go to Dortmund as well, I think, because it would probably suit his style of football better. And more importantly, and this is very sensible of a 19-year-old player, his development as a player would be benefited from going to the Bundesliga. So that leaves a big hole for Manchester United in terms of how do they augment their attacking force. Um, Jesse Lingard's not been playing well. Obviously, Marcus Rashford and Anthony Martial uh, are consistently scoring at the moment, um, but rather inconsistent in their goal conversion rate. I understand that but Dortmund are willing to sell Jadon Sancho, uh, who has, as we've mentioned in the podcast before, been problematic for the German club in terms of off-the-field things, missing training on a couple of occasions, being late for a team meeting. He's been fined. His attitude has been questioned as well. And they're prepared to cash in because Sancho's stock may never be as high uh, for Dortmund as it is now. Um, if they ask 100 million euros, United probably would be prepared to meet it. But they'll have some competition um, from, uh, I think, Manchester City as well. Although Pep Guardiola has said that United will not be buying, uh, sorry, City will not be buying in the January window. So this may be the perfect storm, if you like, in terms of things coming together and United to, to get Jadon Sancho, Johnny. Yeah, it's going to be very, very interesting. In terms of what Sancho could offer United, Ian, he's obviously lightning quick, he's pacey, but United have a fair bit of that already in their front three, and you could argue that they probably need a midfielder more than they need a winger. Where's this uh, drive coming from? Well, potentially, but I think Sancho's a player that's, that's obviously, again, suits Solskjaer's game plan. United uh, have become a purely counter-attacking side. We've seen this season that their best performances um, have been when they've been able to attack with that pace. Now, I'd say that Sancho would be quicker than the players they currently have. He's got the kind of pace Leroy Zani has, um, and therefore he would, as I say, he would augment and indeed improve that counter-attacking game that United play. I think it's a lot of money for a, a player as young as Sancho is, as well as someone who still has a lot to prove. But as we've seen, that's the market right now. And United appear to be prepared to commit that amount of money uh, in order to secure the England international, who also has um, a good ability to dribble on the ball as well, something that perhaps United don't have. Uh, in terms of midfield, then I think they're going to leave that uh, recruitment pattern until the summer, as I don't think any of the targets they're currently looking at are available. And um, they're currently also looking for a left-back as well. But as I said, Sancho is one just to look out for because uh, Dortmund are prepared to cash in on the player's stock, but also they'll make a handsome profit from the money they've paid for um, Haaland, having just bought him from Salzburg. We've touched on Pogba there, Ian, and Mino Reola is obviously uh, a, a, an influence, a major influence on his decision-making. Um, is there any movement on whether or not he could be potentially moving on in the summer, or is that going to be one that we'll just have to keep an eye on as time progresses? Um, I think Paul Pope has always got one eye on his next destination. Obviously, he was very keen to join Real Madrid last summer, Johnny, as we know. Um, if the call came from Madrid in January, and I don't believe it will, um, that's because uh, Pogba is purely a project of Zinedine Zidane and Florentino Perez, the president, does not 
want to authorise that transfer the same as he didn't authorise it in the summer when it could have been done, uh, resulting in Pogba going missing for two months uh, with a very mysterious ankle injury, which saw him play basketball in Miami, uh, et cetera, et cetera, despite having um, not completed his rehabilitation, according to Manchester United. I think uh, with Pogba and with Raiola, yes, it's, anything's possible, but uh, Manchester United will not want to sell him in selling this window. I think they will look at the potential departure of Pogba in the summer uh, with um, an eye to how they replace him. But a lot, for Pogba, a lot will depend on how he, he you know, basically applies himself for the rest of this season, Johnny. Um, he's played very well since he's, since he's come back and uh, looks kind of like the player who you know has impressed so much both for his club and for the France international team. So uh, something that Solskjaer as a coach should be looking to think, well, I need to get the best out of this guy because actually he could be you know, a key to making sure to get Champions League football for next season. We always like to break some transfer news on the podcast. And Ian, you do have some. With Indeed I do. To, uh, a Chelsea player. Uh, Indeed. Olivier Giroud. Indeed, Johnny. Uh, Olivier Giroud, uh, long um, <clears throat> underused since Frank Lampard has come into the club as head coach. Uh, made only seven appearances, in fact, this season so far. Um, five of them in the league uh, and, and scored only one goal. It made no secret about his desire to leave to get playing time. Now, what's interesting about Giroud is not that he wants to leave, but that Chelsea have offered him to Olympic Lyon. Uh, in part exchange plus cash for their France international striker and indeed former Celtic striker, Moussa Dembele. Now, Dembele is someone that who Lyon value, but um, he himself is not extremely happy uh, in Ligue 1. Uh, I think he sees himself as under-challenged. Uh, he's scored 10 goals and 18 appearances in Ligue 1 this season so far. He um, someone who has always looked at the Premier League as a destination for him to uh, fulfil an ambition. Chelsea would be a good option for him. We know that Lampard is desperate to get um, a striker to take all of the pressure off of Tammy Abraham, and indeed that's certainly the case. Uh, we saw Abraham score the winning goal in uh, fine fashion at the Emirates against Arsenal on the weekend. And uh, Giroud would be very open to move back to Lyon. However, and this is a little bit, this is where there's little twists and turns uh, that may happen. Um, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, representatives have made it very clear to Arsenal that his, their client wants to leave Arsenal in January. Uh, and indeed, Aubameyang has the type of personality that he would um, certainly agitate for a move if that were the case, that he needed to. And this, a definite interest from Real Madrid and also Barcelona for the 30-year-old who's second top striker in the Premier League and Arsenal's um, current top goal scorer with 15 goals uh, this season. Now, that would mean Arsenal are short of a striker. Now, whew, who would you go for? Well, look, there's Olivier Giroud over at Chelsea. He's a former Arsenal player. He knows the team, knows the club. Uh, maybe he'd be open to coming back. It's not the biggest stretch of imagination. Now I understand that Giroud would be open to moving back to Arsenal um, and staying in London. Uh, and I, again, that wouldn't necessarily affect Chelsea's interest in Dembele. Dembele's valued at around 60 million euros. 
they certainly have that money to spend. Of course, they've uh, had no uh, uh, incomings last summer because of the transfer ban, which has now been lifted. So Chelsea are looking to spend. Um, and I believe Lampard would, would not be averse to letting Jerry go to Arsenal. After all, they, they allowed David Luiz to go there last summer. Uh, just at the end of the transfer window, there's um, reasonable relations between the clubs, so there's no um, rancor or um, history which would prevent them selling Giroud to Arsenal. He's going to be cheap, probably around £5 million in the last six months of his contract. So I can see Giroud um, <clears throat> moving one way uh, south to France or north London. Um, uh, I think the cusp of the, any move to Arsenal will, of course, be where not Arsenal are prepared to sell Aubameyang because, as I said, he is uh, a very viable asset. Uh, and if they do, obviously, need to replace him. Uh, but with Chelsea, it would certainly be uh, a very, very um, good move if they could get Moussa Dembele, who is a proven goal scorer and very, very similar to Tammy Abraham as well, um, where they can persuade Dembele to come to Stamford Bridge on the basis he would be number two. They would have to, they would have to sell it to him as well. Look, if you're better than Abraham, then obviously you start. And of course, this was the problem um, that uh, Arsenal had uh, in trying to sign Dembele from Celtic before he did move to Leo, i.e. they couldn't guarantee him uh, a starting place. And Dembele chose against Celtic's wishes to stay at Parkhead because he knew he'd be number one uh, striker. So that's going to be a complex negotiation in terms of the player personally, but not in terms of um, finances. So one which has said, you know, we've got uh, exciting uh, 40 hours joining until the window officially opens in uh, both England and Europe. And I suspect there'll be, I don't think there'll be the busiest of windows. It never is in January because of the complications regarding inflated fees. And obviously, why would you sell your best player halfway through the season? You'd have to be desperate or the player would have to be really, really um, agitating to get out. But I think there will be movement and um, we'll see quite a, a few. Of course, we'll bring you the news first here on the transfer window. You know, I want to drill into this Obama-Yang situation a little bit because I think Arsenal fans listen to this and the idea of losing, you know, the top uh, striker in the, the Premier League or certainly one of the top three strikers in the league and replacing them with uh, Olivier Giroud probably wouldn't go down too well. But there is another side to this, isn't there? Because, listen, he's 30 at the moment. He's 31 in June. His value is never going to be higher than it is in this moment. And you've got a young manager coming in who's got the next six months as a freebie, really. And... Would it be a, a good move for Arsenal just to clear the decks of this player? You can be difficult. You get the opportunity to bring in maybe £100 million and then in the summer you've got that money to reinvest in a younger player. It is um, a quite unique situation um, in terms of the January window, yes. Uh, fact, I, look, John, Arsenal have had three different managers in the last uh, six weeks. So... Aubameyang is using that as leverage to say this is an unstable club. We are unlikely to make Champions League and I need to be doing that at my age. I want to win the Champions League. I want to go to a club where I've got that opportunity. He's done very well for Arsenal. As you say, his age is a factor. I'll tell you what else is a factor, though. He's overshadowed Alexandre Lacazette, who also has been a prolific scorer for Arsenal. And um, as we saw in the game against Chelsea on Sunday, uh, Arteta made the quite brave 
but a move that worked by uh, switching Aubameyang to the left side and playing Lacazette as a central striker. Now, don't get me wrong, it was Aubameyang in the box who scored Arsenal's goal. Um, but so clearly, you know, he wasn't, he was coming inside off of the left. But there's no way, absolutely no way Aubameyang will put up with being played on the left uh, so that they can accommodate Lacazette. I think that was a statement about Aubameyang's agitation for this move, as I, I said before. I, that he was put on the left uh, and told to uh, be disciplined about it. And yeah, you're right. Why not sell an asset like that? And let's face it, Arsenal, this is a team who, when they bought Nicola Pepe for 75 million euros, uh, and they had to basically do it in the never-never. They had to pay in installments because he just simply didn't have the cash. Now, that, again, is not unusual. It's unusual to actually pay transfer fees up front. But not all clubs will accept that. So the idea of selling Aubameyang as awful and and you know impractical and, and possibly even you know stupid as it may seem to Arsenal fans, he is their hero, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He's the one who scores the goals, and the club may well decide that if they can get that amount of money for you know as you say someone who's 31 in the summer, they should take it, uh, and they get rid of what could be a troublesome player if he doesn't get his move. Lacazette can then play through the middle. Giroud would know that if he did go back to Arsenal, he'd be going as a, a second-choice striker. And at his age, 33, then I'm pretty sure that he wouldn't mind. Um, that's not going to be a problem for him. Uh, Arsenal is a club, as I said, that he knows and feels comfortable with. So uh, they could reinvest the money they get for Aubameyang elsewhere where they need it. Um, there's some talk of reigniting their interest in Thomas Lamar, the French international winger, who went moved to Atletico Madrid from Monaco, who would be very expensive. Um, and they also obviously need central defence. Um, Gareth Xhaka is likely to join Hertha Berlin, so again, they'll be short in midfield. There's lots of places Arteta could spend that money. So as you rightly say, this is possibly uh, a kind of you know, alignment of the stars as far as um, Obama and getting his wishes, and Arsenal being able to improve their team. Remember that um, when Everton... Uh, way back in the days of Joe Royal when they last won uh, the first division, they sold one Gary Lineker uh, and uh, this club bought four players for the money they got for Lineker and, and won the championship that year. So it's not unprecedented. Um, I'm going back a few years, obviously, but that, that was certainly the case. Yes, before me and many of our listeners were born, but that's what happens when you have an old fart as a pundit on your podcast. Who's that? <laughs> it's not you. You're young at heart, pal. Mr. Dembele, Ian. I just want to touch on that as well because obviously he's been a, a discussion point on the on the pod for 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 almost a year now. Um, he's a player I, I know you rate highly, and I, I certainly do. I think he's the best striker that we've seen in Scottish football, with the exception of, of Henrik Larsson. Um, in the last 20 odd years 20, 25, 30 maybe even years uh, he's got power, he's got pace he can finish um, he's just a class act are you surprised that given the amount of interest there has been the amount of clubs watching him that we're only really talking about potentially Chelsea making a swoop for him uh, we discussed Manchester United in detail going back maybe to the last transfer window given uh, Haaland has now gone to Dortmund could Dembele be a potential move for Manchester United again? Um, I've no doubt that they've scouted him, that's for sure. Um, they've also scouted Timo Werner at RB Leipzig. 
uh, my information is that although Werner uh, favours a move to the Premier League, um, Leipzig right now are top of the Bundesliga um, by two points. They have definitely have ambitions to win, which of course would be an historic win. Uh, are they likely to sell um, their top striker um, in the January window when they're in such a commanding, well, a strong position in the Bundesliga in terms of challenging? Uh, I doubt it, um, despite the players' interest in moving. But the, the kind of deal that clubs always are very regularly um, straight with players who want to leave is that, well, give us six months and we will allow to leave for a reasonable fee. In various cases, there's a buyout clause anyway. Um, this is exactly what Chelsea did before uh, the season before um, uh, Eden Hazard moved to Real Madrid. They said, give us one more season and we will be very um, easy to negotiate with. Uh, as far as your move to Real Madrid is concerned, we know that that's your wish and we will honour it if you honour an agreement to stay. So this is a regular um, way to play uh, an agreement between player and club. So I suspect Werner is out of reach. Um, in terms of uh, Dembele, yes, Manchester City have scouted him. Uh, there's no doubt there would be interest. Um, he would certainly fit into Manchester City's mode of play. Um, remember, Manchester United right now don't really have an out-and-out striker. Martial is a kind of like nine and a half. Um, mm. or he doesn't he doesn't quite fit the point striker um, role. He's more a player who can play wide and come in. Um, he's being used as the as the central uh, of the front three at the moment, and it seems to be going good in some games, not so good in others. But then that's Manchester United all over. So yeah, I'm sure Dembele, as I said, would be uh, a potential. Um, signing for Manchester United as well, which would, of course would make the move to Chelsea more difficult. So um, in terms of, you know, obviously there being an auction. Again, all this, Jean-Marie Olas, the president of, of Lyon, is a notoriously um, hard negotiator. Players do not leave, first of all, unless he wants them to leave. And secondly, they do not leave for cheap. So um, I think both um, clubs will find it difficult to prize Dembele away from Leon in this window. Um, however, with the player wanting to move, then again, that, that will be a factor. Dembele, as I said before, um, is difficult for um, Chelsea because he would, wouldn't be first choice. So uh, Manchester United may well be a better option for him. But again, Manchester United at this moment in time are outside of the top four. Chelsea are in the top four. So again, this is a player who's got big ambitions. OK, we're going to move on to what was a fascinating game between Arsenal and Chelsea yesterday. Chelsea grabbing a 2-1 win in the end. But there was a lot of positives for Mikel Arteta and Arsenal fans, Ian. What did you make, first of all, of their overall performance? And could you see the Arteta effect? Uh, I could see the Pep Guardiola effect. I'll say that. Arteta spent three years uh, under um, the maestro. And uh, or should say the mister, and um, you could see that in the way his team lined up. They were a four-two-three-one. Um, Nelson Mbamayang on the flanks, Ozil playing as a classic ten behind Lacazette. Uh, Guendouzi and Torreira, yeah, Guendouzi and Torreira did a very good job in mid in in the first half of nullifying Chelsea's midfield. They played on the counter. Um, they had an amazing move in the first half, which almost ended in the goal where the ball was passed at lightning pace on the right side of the the field. And Nelson had a fantastic cross into the box. 
which just couldn't be met. Very close. Um, look, I think they had an identity about them, which they've lacked under Unai Emery. Um, they had a, a, a definite sense of how they were supposed to play, a game plan, um, and discipline tactically as well. I think um, what was interesting was as much as uh, the Arsenal team and it's the way it played was a kind of uh, duplicate of uh, Arteta's mentor, Guardiola, that Lampard also um, basically employed a classic Jose Mourinho tactic. Um, he saw that his back three wasn't working um, and that Arsenal were playing through them in the first 30 minutes. Uh, he then took Emerson off and replaced him with Jorginho and went to a back four, uh, matched the Arsenal, Arsenal up in terms of midfield. Jorginho became, I would say, a midfield enforcer. He and Guendouzi got into a couple of real nice rucks, uh, proper um, old school kind of uh, tussling and tackling. Of course, Jorginho then went on to score the equalising goal as well when Burton Leno completely missed uh, the cross and and he just had a tap in. But that whole that disruptor uh, move that Mourinho has made his own of hauling a player off, after, you know, in the first half early on uh, and changing your game plan um, <clears throat> certainly worked for Lampard. It's, it's it's a brave thing to do, but it, as I said, having learned under Mourinho. Um, I'm sure that Frank Lampard had no um, sort of quells about or qualms about um, doing what he felt what he had to do for the team. And to be fair, they changed and the momentum changed in the game as well. They held Arsenal for the last 15 minutes, of the first half, and then the second half it was completely changed. Chelsea had most of the play. Uh, certainly, the, the the modes of uh, phases of play were in their favour, and they stopped Arsenal from getting out of their own half on many occasions. And, uh, and made chances and, of course, scored two goals in four minutes of the of the final ten. Very, very impressive. But, of course, these, this is two teams, Johnny, <clears throat> excuse me, who are not at the top of their game. Um, that's, Arsenal have only one win in the last 14 in all competitions. Um, Chelsea themselves have lost five of the last eight Premier League games. Uh, so these are teams who are, who are struggling to find consistency of form, but in certainly Arsenal's case, I think the Arsenal fans, it was interesting, the mood in the stadium, which is notoriously difficult and fickle at the Emirates, certainly in the first half had changed and there was a connection again between the team and the fans that just has lacked for, well, six months or more. Uh, and um, interestingly, yet, yet again, Chelsea win a big match away from home where they've struggled. Of course, they've lost four home games out of those five in the last eight including games to Bo- uh, losses to Southampton, Bournemouth and West Ham. Teams you'd think they should be running over quite easily. So, yeah, it was a very interesting game and uh, an, an interesting indication of what's to come from both managers. Yeah, and I've got a dusty book on my shelf. It's entitled Totally Frank. And a uh, bit of a dodgy name, but the author of that book is one Mr Ian McGarry, alongside, of course, Frank Lampard's. And I was wondering, given your close proximity to the player when you wrote that book, could you tell even then this was a guy that had a future in management? There's been a lot of made of the fact that he, he's a very intelligent guy away from the field, that he's uh, he's got that good uh, level of EQ, he can get in people's heads and, ma- and manage them on a sort of personal and, and, and interpersonal basis. We're, we're, are you surprised to see him having Chelsea in that top four? 
even without the ability to go out and spend the millions that many of his predecessors had the opportunity to do? Um, I'm not surprised that he's, he's in management. That's always his ambition to stay in the game when he retired from playing. Um, I've been slightly surprised it's come this quickly. Um, and by that, I mean even joining Derby County for last season. Uh, I thought he might take a bit of time off um, before um, going back into immersing himself in the full-time uh, game. Um, however, like Frank will admit himself that um, he wouldn't be Chelsea manager if it wasn't for him being Frank Lampard because one season at Derby County where you fail to get promoted uh, via the playoff final is not the kind of CV that a Chelsea manager normally has. But of course, Frank has a huge amount of credit in the in the bank with regards to his playing career there and, and his relationship with fans, etc. Um, I think he is... The inconsistency in Chelsea, I believe, is down to <clears throat> a lack of um, game management intelligence in his young players. He's got some good senior players in there, like Aspilicueta, um, who are very, very experienced and know how to, and he's the captain obviously, knows, know how to play a game out. But um, in players like Tamori uh, and Mason Mount, Abraham, uh, even Hudson-Odoi, etc., etc., um, they are players who are still learning their trade. Now, they've got huge amounts of talent, absolutely no doubt about that. And they've they've exhibited that talent in the way that they've played, the, the fact that they've all made, um, they've mostly made England call-ups as well. And um, But what they don't have yet is just the experience of, as I say, that in, intelligence of when you are ahead or, or indeed if you are behind, how you manage the game in order to change things or, or make sure that you get the victory. So... Um, that's not a criticism of Lampard as a coach. That's just simply how things are at this stage in those players' careers. So I would imagine that in January, but probably more significantly in the summer, uh, Lampard will look to bring in players of just a little bit, um, maybe 25, 26, who've got big match experience, maybe one or two in key positions. Um, as you saw, you saw Jorginho, who is a very experienced player, come on and effectively run the game and change, put the, turn the game on its head. Um, that's good management from Lampard. You know, that was after only 30 minutes. He saw the problems. He made the substitution to solve them. It, it worked. So as far as um, Frank's ability, I don't think there's any doubt he's, he's a very emerging um, uh, good coach. Don't forget Jody Morris, who's had a UEFA Pro license for the best part of seven, eight years now and worked in Chelsea's academy with most of these young players. He's a key part of that team. It's not just about Frank, it's about Jody as well. Okay, we're going to move on to the heroes and villains section now. Um, I am going to go first, um, as is my want. I, I seem to have taken up this mantle of going first. Normally, uh, it's Duncan, isn't it? Normally, it's Duncan goes first. Am I? We like to share it around, Johnny. We're very, we're very yes. democratic. Well, as a guest, I'm taking up guest rights. I'm just jumping in. So I'm going to go, first of all, with my hero of the week, which is Mr. Steven Gerrard. Uh, he has done a, a phenomenal job at Rangers when he took over. They were in dire straits. Uh, to put it into context of where Rangers were, they were beaten in the Europa League first qualifying round by a Luxembourg team called Progress Niederkorn. And since Gerrard arrived, the, the next season following that defeat, uh, they went through twice four qualifying rounds to reach the Europa League and have given a very, very good account of themselves on both occasions. 
this year qualifying through that group, which for a Scottish team, regardless of budget, is no mean feat. Celtic, of course, did that as well. We now have two very strong teams up in Scotland. Um, but Gerard uh, has struggled this season against Celtic. They lost the first league game at Ibrox 2-0. Celtic were by far the stronger team. And they lost the League Cup final where Rangers performed a lot better. But Celtic managed to get uh, a goal from one of their only chances in the game. But Gerard has shown time and time again that he is prepared to look back on his failings and his mistakes and learn from them. And he has all the makings of a future Premier League manager. And I think when Jurgen Klopp um, looks to hang up his um, cap, at Liverpool, they will look to Steven Gerrard if he continues on his trajectory at the moment because he is looking a very, very impressive young manager. Your thoughts, Mr McGarry? Well, that was certainly a Castles-esque length of reply, uh, <laughs> that's for sure. And of I course, on. As I'm sure you could. And as we like to say on the Transfer Podcast, there are as yet undiscovered tribes in the Amazon basin who knew you were going to make Steven Gerrard. <laughs> Your hero of the week. Like, I agree with everything you said. He's, he's got, like Lampard, he's got the intelligence, he's got the experience, and he's got the reputation. And um, he will certainly uh, manage the Premier League, and he will certainly manage Liverpool, um, in my opinion. Uh, just to wrap this one up, I would make uh, hero and villain, Johnny, um, in the same game. It's our old friend Valerie, VAR, uh, in Liverpool Wolves game for um, disallowing a Wills goal for what appeared to be um, the most marginal of offside decisions uh, without, of course, and this is part of the problem of VAR, um, not being able to accurately tell when the ball leaves uh, the passing boot and then uh, where, where the defender is when that happens. Um, and it was so marginal. I just, you know, it just it makes me very, very uh, quite frustrated and angry. Um, Fernando Espirito Santo, who very diplomatically declined to talk about it because he said he's said enough about these things. But of course, in the same game, VAR made a hero of itself because um, when Liverpool did score, Virgil van Dijk hit a peach of a long pass uh, in, and um, Adam Lallana uh, guided the ball in the path of Sadio Mane, came off his shoulder, perfectly legal way to play the ball. Uh, his arm was out. VAR spotted it and the goal was given. So uh, hero and villain, unusual for the transfer podcast, is VAR. Ian, just very, very quickly, um, it, it recalls the Leonard Cohen song, Everybody Knows, because everybody does know that VAR isn't working as it, in its current form. Well, what's the, the way forward, briefly? Uh, I think we have to take out, we have to decide on a margin of um, distance on, on offside calls um, or and use VR or or if it is if it's indeterminate I think like it that we do in cricket um, it goes to the on-field call of the officials so whatever the original call was that's what stands I think that's the way to do it but I think what's what's happening is I mean I was at uh, Brighton um, uh, on uh, Saturday Southampton and uh, again, there was a, a very, very marginal goal ruled out by VR from, from Dan Byrne. And right around the stadium, as we've heard at other stadiums this uh, this current season when VR has been introduced um, in every game, it's not football anymore, rang out from the fans. That's the frustration of the fans. These guys are the ones paying 
50, 60, 70 quid. Depending where you are, it could be up to 120 quid in the Premier League. They're paying their money. And this is purely down to the sheer bloody-mindedness of one guy, Mike Riley, who has invested so much in introducing VAR in the Premier League that he simply will not or refuses to change or bend on it. But it would not surprise me, Johnny, and sorry this isn't as quick as you wanted it to be, but when the next Premier League stakeholders meeting takes place, there will be another discussion, as there was in the last meeting, uh, with uh, Mike Riley, and there will be further demands for a, uh, a options, at least, to change the rules. OK, well, we're going to wrap it at that. Ian, I apologise for calling you an old fart. What I meant to say is, like, you're like a um, Chateau Margot. You, you age beautifully. Thank you, Johnny. I'll be drinking myself this evening. <laughs> you can continue the debate if you get in touch with us on Twitter. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. But why would you want to talk to me when you can get in touch with Mr. Ian McGarry at, at GarboSG? Garbo and of course, the daily departed but never forgotten Mr. Duncan Castles, who shall be back again at some point, I'm hoping. Uh, Friday, Johnny, uh, will again be taking a little rest this Wednesday, it being New Year's Day. Uh, but Duncan, I hope, will be back with us on Friday's podcast. Well, you can get hold of him at Duncan Castles. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, please, please go online to iTunes and give us a five-star review as that helps spread the words and get more people involved in our ever-burgeoning conversation here at the Transfer Window podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening.